برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسی In the name of the God of Rainbows, welcome to Woman Life Freedom All In on Iran, a podcast series that we began in early 2023 to go deep in conversations with experts on various aspects of the revolutionary uprising that began in Iran in September 2022 when 22-year-old Masa Jina Amini was killed in morality police detention in Tehran. In each episode, we unpack an important aspect of what was a historic moment unfolding in Iran, with large ripple effects that continue today. This uprising will be studied by historians and social scientists for many years to come, and discussed by everyday people in their reflections of the country's tumultuous path. And we intend to quote-unquote archive our experts' insights today, in the wake of these recent events, close to the details, leaving an oral resource for the general public and scholars alike. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdus, an assistant professor in media and Middle Eastern studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Stay tuned. Okay, and um, here with us today we have Arash Azizi, who's a historian of the 20th century social and political movements with a particular interest in global socialism. He's a senior lecturer in history and political science at Clemson University and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. His new book, What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom, will be published very soon. Uh, by the time you hear this podcast, is potentially already published in January 2024. And I think congratulations are in order, Arash, because you have also recently received your doctorate. You've completed your dissertation. Is that correct? That's right. Thank you very much. I, uh, I defended a few months ago. Wonderful. So you are now Dr. Arash. Um, and... Um, I also want to mention, of course, your former book. This is the second book you've published, uh, on, and you know, perhaps there are others uh, in, in Persian that I don't know of. Um, no, but the writing, I mean, I've published books in translation, but in writing, these are the two uh -huh. uh, that I've written these in, are the in two. English. Wonderful. So your very first book uh, was titled The Shadow Commander, Soleimani, the U.S. and Iran's Global Ambitions, um, published in 2021, if I'm correct, yes? Uh, November 2020. So close, yes. Oh, November 2020. Okay, right. wonderful. It's so wonderful having you here today, Arash. Um, your book, um, you know, is, as it says on the back cover, the first major book on the uprisings in Iran in 2022 and 2023. Uh, I know Malu Halasa in England has published a book a couple of months ago, but it's much more sort of a compilation of other people's writings. So this is really the first book to provide a narrative by an author on the Woman Life Freedom Uprising. So what I wanted to do today is kind of talk with you about, um, you know, the different uh, chapters in your book, different personalities and personas and events that you highlight throughout your book. And then also a little bit, you know, ask you a little bit about your practice as a writer, because um, that's something that I, as, an, as a former journalist, uh, you know, a current academic interested in doing work that has public outreach. I'm very interested in the kind of work that you do and want to ask you a little bit about your practice as well. But let's head to your book first. Um, I know you say in the acknowledgments that it was really um, a request uh, by the publisher 
uh, by Novin Dustar that encouraged you to write this book. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how you felt about sort of when you were thinking about whether or not writing this book, what were some of the thoughts that were going through your head in terms of challenges or things you wanted? What were some immediate thoughts that, that came to you? Uh, thank you. That's an excellent question. Um, I think when it comes to representations of revolutions and revolutionary movements, one thing that bugged me, and I'm sure it bugged you and, and a lot of others, is that, you know, by nature, um, coverage of protests and, and sort of mass movements like this can sort of be facile, because um, what is it that you can say? There are tons of people outside, they don't like their government, they're fighting against it, they're being put down, um, um, and they'll continue protesting, and they're put down again. Um, and maybe some particular actions will be a lot of focus, and of course, uh, the world was in awe of Iranian people, in particular Iranian women, um, they, with the kind of actions that they had done, like, uh, you know, burning their enforced hijab. Um, and there was a sort of a lot of conversation and debates about this in, in various corners. But I, what I thought was uh, perhaps a little lacking or perhaps I could provide in a book like this um, to show that actually this movement for uh, woman life freedom as it had become encapsulated in this slogan that, as you know, was sort of borrowed from the Kurdish movement. Um, but but nevertheless, it, it did well to encapsulate a sort of richness um, and a diversity of, of civil society and, and social movements in Iran. So what I really tried to do in this book is to give voice to this variety of social movements that came together to form the 2022-2023 movement. Because, of course, you know, they, um, there is no such a thing as a mass a spontaneous movement um, without this background to it. Um, and and as the title of the book says, what Iranians want, of course, I don't claim to, uh, you know, to know what every Iranian wants. But what I tried to do as someone of sort of my generation, as an Iranian uh, you know, born in 1988, uh, was to try to show that 2022 wasn't the first time that uh, Iranians um, had sort of uh, risen up against this Islamic Republic, the regime that had been oppressing them. Um, so in every chapter of the book, I look at one aspect, if you will, or one movement, um, most of it, uh, you know, about the last, let's say, 10, 15 to 20 years. There's some, uh, you know, I talk about the, uh, anti-compulsory hijab demonstrations of March 1979. But other than that, it's mostly about much more recent events. And, you know, whether it's the labor uh, rights trade union movement in Iran, whether it's the environmental movement, um, the movement for artistic freedom, the movement for different foreign policies. So in each chapter, I try to uh, talk about uh, the fight for one of this. As the, the result of this, I hope if someone reads this book, they'll get a better idea of why is it that Iranians are risking their lives um, time and time again uh, to fight. And what exactly is it that they're fighting for? I think you do that really, really well. And, you know, you um, it is as much about the movement as it is, as you explained, about taking us back and, you know, drawing sort of these other social, um, political, uh, civic rights movements that have led to this moment. And basically, you know, what I've noted is, you know, to just phrase it into one word is your first chapter is really sort of the movement for hijab and you you know, try to trace some of those lines and the the people who agitated for freedom over hijab. The second chapter is broadly speaking about the women's rights movement in Iran. Um, the third one, and I know your titles don't immediately sort of, um, I think, encapsulate necessarily sort of the depth of, you know, or the the um, the topic that you're going to be delving in as such. But the third one being the labor movement, 
the fourth being the environmentalist movement. The fifth, um, which you've called, um, let me go back to your book. Um, uh, we accuse the fight for freedom of expression. You really go back to the chain murders and onward freedom of expression. The sixth one, freedom of religion. I will say that was um, potentially one of my favorite chapters because you take us to Baluchistan and the rights of, you know, Sunnis and Baha'is and give us some depth into a religious leader who became prominent throughout the movement, Moulavi Abdul Hamid. The seventh one about refugee rights, Afghanis rights in Iran, the eighth chapter on, uh, you title it, let's see, I Give My Life for Freedom, The Fight for Peace, really is broadly about Iran's geopolitical entanglements and foreign policy in the region. And the ninth, um, also for sure, uh, my favorite chapter about Sarina, how could it not be, right? Um, the fight for a normal life. So I want to kind of take us back to having you explain to people who are listening to this podcast, um, you know, you do write in your first chapter, and this is something that, of course, we we have talked about, you know, about how the compulsory hijab was initially not seen as being a central issue for Iran's uh, women rights leaders and um, feminist leaders. Can you tell us a little bit about how the, you know, the fight against compulsory hijab became so central to fights for freedom and ultimately the woman life freedom movement? Uh, thank you, and, and thank you very much for your kind words. Um, they they really mean a lot to me. Um, you know, if 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 the pages of this book are even readable in any uh, in, in any way, I'd be um, I'd be very happy. Um, yeah, I think this is an excellent question. I think one of the things that I hope this book shows is that history didn't begin, you know, five years ago, and that there, in fact, has been a long. Uh, sort of pedigree to to struggles in Iran. And unfortunately, even in our own country, um, there's some strange sort of historiography in which people will think, oh, well, a bunch of people were just dupes and they sort of voted for reformists mm -hmm. and, and so they didn't do anything. And now we discovered that actually we have to fight against the Islamic Republic. Whereas I think the beauty of Iranian uh, public life is it's... Uh, what I would call it's like it's a very inspiring pragmatism in, in at which in in every turn people use whatever tools uh, they can to better their lives. Sometimes these tools are voting in elections, and uh, sometimes they are coming to streets in mass demonstrations. Uh, sometimes they are organizing a book bookstore somewhere or an NGO somewhere, right? So, um, mm -hmm. but I think so. The feminist movement in Iran. Uh, made a strategic choice at, at some point. Um, sections of the feminist movement, of course, it always included different sections. But in the late 90s and, and 2000s, I speak about this sort of revival of a feminist movement in Iran, um, which was led by, uh, you know, a bunch of sort of lawyers, rights activists, and they make a strategic decision that actually, well, um, to, to try to go after compulsory hijab would be too risky and too hard and also potentially even divisive since they, you know, the movement included, um, you know, a large number of people who would not necessarily agree on that as a priority. So they go after um, issues such as, uh, let's say, divorce rights, uh, let's say, you know, uh, trying to make progressive uh, changes in law in favor of women and, and sort of the adoption of CEDA, um, the Convention um, for Elimination of Discrimination mm -hmm. Against Women. Which, which the government of President Khatami was in favor of, and the, the parliament was able to pass it. Um, and but mm -hmm. you know, of course, it, it uh, died 
um, in and uh, by the sort of unelected bodies of the Islamic Republic, which we are able to nullify it. So they make a sort of a strategic choice to do that, um, but at the same time. Um, I think sometimes maybe they went too far in trying to justify what was what had been a strategic choice as to say, well, actually, does, does it really matter that uh, that half the society has to has to wear the compulsory hijab? I think, you know, in trying to explain their priorities, sometimes perhaps they went too far. And of course, you know, um, the imposition of compulsory hijab, I think future histories will remember as a, a future series of anywhere in the world of global history will remember as a um, singularly uh, cruel and um, unusual, in fact, measure. Um, no other country uh, in the world, with the, now the possible exception of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan, does this. Saudi Arabia, at its height of religious persecution, um, didn't actually impose compulsory hijab everywhere. It did it in some places, but you know, it sort of didn't do it everywhere. Funnily enough, if it wanted to enforce it, it would have much less problem doing it. Um, by which I mean the, mm. the voluntary wearing of hijab was much more pre predominant in many countries. Um, so in Iran, mm. you had a case of a country in which probably if it was up to the populace, I would say probably, I mean, I don't want to guess, but I don't think a majority would wear the hijab, certainly not the form of hijab that the government expects them to. So you had this massive effort to really... Um, enforce uh, something on the Iranian public sphere um, for which then mm -hmm. you need to have cops um, and so this 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 is this very massive uh, imposition that somehow the movement in the late 90s and and the 2000s had you know not prioritized but there is at some point in which this becomes um uh, you know this becomes something that people campaign about and and there are, there is a precedence in you know in a sort of couple of actions that I talk about in the book um and also it has the potential they I think one of the issues of the feminist movement uh, before was that um you know it uh, you know it basically it one of the one of the good things about it was that it, uh, you know it was as I said a bunch of very educated feminists um, and and so it had this sort of language and they had an excellent track record of taking these issues to the public. In my own life, I don't think I've seen anything. Any I've been a political activist in many different countries. One of the most glorious things I've ever seen was this campaign for one million signature in Iran, where this very educated feminists went all over Iran and talked to ordinary women and tried to tell them what this is your rights um, and these are things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you can fight for. So despite that, however, you can see that it ha um, in, in, you know, I don't want to use the word elite necessarily, but focused on certain actions um, that um, that meant, you know, it sort of they had there was some uh, there was a bar into entry, like you needed to uh, get active on some levels, as opposed to uh, the movement uh, against compulsory hijab, which could be as simple as something like taking your hijab off and posting a, a picture of it, mm -hmm. um, you know, as a campaign at some point had it now. Uh, this, I think, was both a liability and, and, you know, it was a great thing because it could all of a sudden involve hundreds of thousands of women. Uh, and it's resulted today, as you and I are talking, of course, this unstable situation in which there's a massive campaign of civil disobedience of people not wearing their hijab and an increasing uh, punishment of it. Um, uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, I think, and I say liability because, of course, when a movement is as easy as uh, sort of uh, civil disobedience actions like this, you know, what kind of organization it will have and what kind of lasting effect it can make uh, is going to be quite, uh, quite different than, than the previous uh, generations. So I think in these first two chapters, when I talk about the broader feminist movement and also the fight against compulsory hijab, we can see some of the um, contradictions and, and processes that the movements in Iran um, have faced as they try to uh, use different tactics to further their goals. 
Right. And of course, you do write about um, a figure who's become quite contentious, especially more recently since the war in Gaza began, uh, Masi Ali Nejad, as, um, you know, as somebody who was quite instrumental to starting some of these campaigns for unveiling. Um, and then subsequently, the Girls of Revolution Street with Vida Mubahed's um, iconic sort of gesture of climbing on a utility box and holding her white scarf on a stick, uh, which was then copied by the Girls of Revolution Street, Revolution Street being Khyabuna uh, Engalab, where all of this uh, started. Um, how do you how do you sort of, you know, did you have any problems uh, or, I don't know, qualms trying to Uh, pen the beginnings of this movement or was this all quite um, clear to you? Are you sort of caught up in any of these contentious uh, discussions that, I don't know, perhaps meddled with the way you were going to write this history? Yeah, you know, I think Masi has had an, an enormous role in this movement and I write about it in the book. I tried to, of course, you know, Iran, Iranian community is relatively small. You know, Mas, uh, I know Masi personally, obviously. I, I tried to be fair uh, to her and her role um, in the book because I think her, the kind of campaign that she did, um, the kind of a straight up standing up to the Islamic Republic that she did and the high price that she's paid as, you know, being hounded by the regime, that there have been attempts to to kill her, to kidnap her on the, on the U.S. soil. And I try to be fair to that. I think the important role that she had. But as I mentioned earlier, there are two things that, you know, there are two sort of critical points that one could raise here. One is that the the kind of activism that Masih really helped uh, increase in Iran was this idea that, you know, you can post a picture and you can sort of uh, click a button and, and so do some activist action it can be very dangerous in a way, by, by which I mean it can be misleading because it can give this idea to people um, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with enough hashtags and retweets, you can, you can change governments and you cannot. And I think this is one of the uh, serious troubles that we've had in, in, in Iran, um, that there, there are many people really seemingly thought that... Um, this kind of uh, online action can can change things without organization. In fact, they uh, sometimes wrote long articles from both left and the right, arguing that you know horizontalism is great and you don't need organizations. And I think that's a disastrous mistake. Um, and I think that's what mm-hmm. has stopped the movement so far. Um, that you mm-hmm. know the lack of organizations. And I think this is something that, of course, I'm not saying she was single uh, singularly responsible for it because I mean it's not like others did better. At some point, she actually uh, did a very important work also in trying to bring people of different backgrounds together um, uh, and you know because she has always been sort of very ambitious um, uh, you know that didn't quite work out but at any rate this kind of activism um, can be also misleading you cannot change the world by by retweeting uh, I hope that that much is clear by now and you cannot change the world without organization uh, and and um, you know without um, without in fact mm-hmm. some sort of a structure the second point mm-hmm. of course is that uh, Masih could have uh, remained a sort of a, let's say, she could have remained, uh, you know, she, ha- she had, as chair profile rose, she had different choices. She could have either become a single issue activist that really tried to own this issue of, of compulsory hijab and broader women's rights and sort of be a supra-partisan, if you will, some sort of non-partisan, uh, but she didn't do that. Of course, she started also advocating for very particular policies, and that's fine. Then she could have, um, you know, she could have made the transition to a political activist, and in a way she has. But then, in this transition, she supports policies that, uh, you know, are necessarily not supportable by myself and by others. Um, 
recently, of Can course. Can you be specific? Yeah, yeah definitely. Recently, of course, um, she uh, very worryingly on the sidelines of a conference in Canada, she effectively called for a military strike on Iran, which I, uh, you know, which I consider to be a uh, to be a disastrous uh, mistake. And I, you know, in my public media mm -hmm. work, I, I criticize her for that. And but it, but it makes it even worse than the actual thing is that it seems to have been some sort of an afterthought um, um, mm -hmm. that she mentions in a speech. And I think this the 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 roots of this were already there in some of her previous political engagements when she opposed the nuclear talks um, mm -hmm. uh, when they were going on and when they had some results um, and, and some of the other sort of policies that she has calibrated. Basically, I don't think she's done very well in this uh, in this transition from a an activist, a single issue activist, if you will, to this broader mm -hmm. political activist. I don't think she's done very well because she, because the kind of policies that she's supported um, are no longer supported by you know I I can't support them myself as a progressive, um, but also I don't think they're actually very coherent. Um, also, um, I you know mm -hmm. I don't think uh, you know. Um, you know, you you cannot uh, you cannot sort of stand for a politics without defending them on your own grounds. Um, by which I mean, uh, you cannot just say, "Well, this is what the people of Iran want," and you know, you know, you're a political activist. That's fine. There are the different policies you can advocate. But if you advocate for disastrous policies like a military strike on Iran, we will oppose you at every turn um, uh, because that you know that would be really uh, disastrous. And uh, I, uh, you know. Uh, so, so this is this is this is sort of my issues and the kind of criticism that I have. This hasn't necessarily made it into the book, partially because these comments actually were made after uh, the book was written. Um, uh -huh. Uh, uh -huh. You know, um, and also because, nevertheless, I I believe she had an important uh, role in the any anybody who wants to write the history of women's movement in Iran would have to dedicate. Uh, a chapter or some parts to Massey and uh, evaluate uh, her role there. Um, and I think mm -hmm. most fair uh, critics will will say that you know she did she definitely she was one of the most influential abroad based activists at some point who was really able to engage uh, ton, tens of thousands of people in unprecedented ways. But I think ultimately, unfortunately, she didn't use this political capital uh, very well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in your next chapter, in your second chapter, you do highlight some of the women's rights activists from within Iran. Some of them have left. So, you you know, you mentioned Mehrangiz Kar and Shirin Abadi, the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize awardee. Um, and then, you know, you, you do give us some more detail on people who've been working from within prison to uh, raise Iranian women's voices and who've actually issued some of the most progressive manifestos that we've read uh, in the course of Woman Life Freedom. So you mentioned people like Nargis Mohammadi, Bahari Hidayat, um, Fariba Kamalabadi, um, Golroch Irai, Sepide Golian. Um, and I wonder, can you also comment a little bit about, you know, we have these women who've been working tirelessly from within the framework of the Islamic Republic to gain rights for women. Where do they stand now in the course of Woman Life Freedom? How do you position them and what, you know, how do you see them and their work as um, significant um, in the moment and potentially in the long term? Um, yeah, they're brilliant, um, you know, potential leaders in Iranian prisons. Um, when I was writing the book, Nargis hadn't won the Nobel Peace Prize yet. Uh, she has mm -hmm. now, which which is sort of brilliant. Uh, she had also previously published a book with my uh, publisher, One World. Um, so uh, mm -hmm. this was a this mm -hmm. was definitely a, jo a jolly news. Um, and mm 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nargis, like myself and many others, had a past of, you know, voted for Rouhani um, in in, um, in previous elections, like in 2017, she supported vote for Rouhani and others, but she has now uh, come to sort of advocate an overthrowing of the Islamic Republic and its replacement with a different system. Um, and I think that's true uh, about some other people, whether they, uh, you know, whether they advocated voting before um, inside the Islamic Republic. Um, or not, and, and many of them now advocate uh, sort of getting rid of the regime. But um, so there's there's a diversity of voices. This uh, the woman that you named, I think what they had in common was that they organized the March 8th International Women's Day uh, in in Iranian prisons uh, in in 2023, mm-hmm. and they spoke it together. And they they actually was a just the names that you mentioned shows sort of a wonderful diversity. You have Farba Kamal Abadi, who is a Baha'i, and and for those who don't know, proponents of Baha'i uh, faith. Um, sort of don't advocate partisan policies. So she's just there for what she believes um, and she stands up for women's rights um, um, and for the rights of her cellmates without sort of acting, being active in partisan politics. And there's Sepide Golian who identifies as a leftist was and was a sort of a labor journalist and, and was arrested for that. Um, and Nagis Mohammadi herself, who belongs to what you could call some sort of a center-left um, uh, political tradition in Iran, I would sort of broadly define it. So you have a, you have a very wide range of um, of uh, politics inside Iran, and in fact, I, I have to say, um, you know, we have to. We have to remember this is a very desperate, despairing, and sad moment in Iranian politics. There's no way around it. I don't think anyone looks at Iranian politics right now and says, oh, every, things couldn't be better, um, and especially compared to a year ago. And I think part of that is the reality that, you know, inside Iran, there's this rich uh, sort of political activity, but things are effectively bottled up because of political repression, because uh, you cannot do even the kind of work that you were able to do in late 90s or early 2000s in a in a way even let's say mm-hmm. around in the Rouhani administration you know so um, you know from 2013 onwards um, even those kind of act- which was already much 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 more limited than late 90s and sort of early 2000s so inside Iran any political activity any civic activity lands you in jail. Um, so that's why it's very hard to organize. But outside Iran, and unfortunately, where there are no such, uh, there, there's no such repression, there are no such obstacles, um, mm. there has been a lack of appreciation of this richness of Iranian political traditions and, uh, you know, the kind of uh, uh, terrible uh, dividing up into a sort of mutually hostile groups that basically prioritize hostility to each other as opposed to sort mm-hmm. of the Islamic Republic. Um, and also have, have you know, frankly, uh, they've shown, they've done much less interesting work uh, compared to uh, these figures that I just named uh, inside Iran. So um, I hope that, I hope if, if this book shows anything um, to anybody who wants to think about Iran and learn about Iran um, is that, I think we have to face off that uh, no matter whether I or others outside, you know, whatever work we can do, really um, the um, the the most impressive, um, inspiring and consequential uh, figures of Iranian politics are not outside the borders of Iran. They are inside, mm-hmm. although we can mm-hmm. echo them and, and be their voice. Um, and of course, we can also have our own politics. I don't have sort of this moral vision that if once you leave the borders of Iran, you know, you can't have any politics mm-hmm. and anybody who is inside Iran is a saint. You know, I don't think that. But I just think 
uh, speaking factually, pragmatically, and I wouldn't even have said that necessarily a couple of years ago, I had some more hopes for diaspora-based uh, movements. Mm -hmm. um, I think the reality is, if to be a bit humble, is that it's really, uh, it's these figures inside Iran um, who um, who have shown uh, the best and most impressive uh, political work, although they are also really constrained, as I said, because of the repression and because of the um, mm -hmm. lack of uh, political organization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the um, figures who you have sort of weaving her way through a couple of uh, chapters is, of course, uh, Faiza Hashemi, the daughter of um, Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, the former um, president of Iran. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned the role of um, reformists and the fact that Nagis Mohammadi herself was a supporter of reformists. And I think one of the most pernicious um, developments that I've seen um, is this ahistorical understanding of anybody who ever collaborated with reformists or supported reformists is anathema in terms of anything to do with progress or you know, change in Iran, this, uh, you know, understanding this sort of revisionist uh, history of post-revolutionary Iran as if, you know, uh, there was never any support for these reformists, as if reformists were always seen as being implicit in, um, you know, the the kind of power that is to be unseated in Iran. And I think that's, that's an interesting, um, you know, thread um, that, you know, when you write about these people, that very much counters these these newer claims that are very much present in media productions, on social media, and the kinds of, you know, kuche or productions that people watch, a lot of Iranians watch, both inside and outside of Iran. I wonder if um, if you've if you have any sort of comments on that. I absolutely agree with you that this is a revisionist history. That's exactly um, you know that's exactly what it is. It's a revisionist history in which. Uh, as I said, you you know the kind of the the picture is Iranians were kind of just dupes going along with oppression, um, foolishly voting in these elections, uh, like fools believing that change can come from within uh, within sort of the Islamic Republic. Until one day they woke up and they realized that's not the case, um, and then they rose up, um, and you know now they've learned that the enemy is the regime. Um, it, this is this is not serious history. The reality is the Islamic Republic has changed a lot. The opposition to it has changed a lot. A variety of political movements have, have changed a lot. Um, and, you know, reformists um, have always had many limits, uh, contradictions, uh, problematics, um, and definitely we need sort of a critical view of them. Um, and this is both reformist and their supporters, by which I mean, you know, reformists, let's say, by reformists, you know, capital R, we mean Eslah Talab, a faction of the Islamic Republic that historically came to um, support a variety of reform reformist sort of ideas from the late 90s mm -hmm. until today. Um, and, you know, some of them went much more far than others. As we, you and I are speaking now, Mustafa Tajzadeh, a deputy interior minister mm -hmm. under President Khatami is in jail. And Tajzadeh effectively advocates abolishing the most basic tenets of the Islamic Republic. And he 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 uh, wants to get rid of the position of the supreme leader and makes it elected. Um, you know, so the, he is a very different kind of reformist than those that continue to serve in the parliament and continue to sort of be a very loyal opposition. So there's a very wide range. And then there's their social base because they didn't have, this wasn't like six people doing something. They had a mass social base, um, a mass social movement that got these people elected, um, that worked with them. Uh, and then there was also a mass of, you know, people who did different kind of social, uh, you know, social organizing, right? That you should, people like Mehrangi's car, um, you know, mm -hmm. 
For many years now, she, uh, she did all sorts of activism inside her. And one of the people that I have a lot of respect for uh, personally, she did so all sorts of work from running a feminist uh, book uh, publication house or um, sort of publishing books to a, I mean, she didn't run the, pub, the Shahla Lahiji ran the publication mm-hmm. house. She collaborated mm-hmm. with it. She ran a sort of legal office <clears throat> and, and, you know, tons of other examples. Um, and we really lose a lot by forgetting this history. And frankly, um, I think you're absolutely right that this is not just, uh, you know, this is not just, you know, some people abroad thinking that. Um, I think some people mm-hmm. in the new generations have really come to think that because they don't know as much mm-hmm. that history. And and um, uh, I think that, and I think that's bad because um, it's bad because it uh, it forgets it lets us forget that actually there is a long struggle against the Islamic Republic um, that mm-hmm. that didn't just start five years ago. It's also bad because we forget that we can have a sort of um, we forget some of the great examples um, and lessons that we can uh, take from that period where, as I said, a lot of people were organized, very serious work were done. And it's kind of ironic mm-hmm. that people who haven't been able to organize mm-hmm. anything themselves, now it's at people that, uh, you know, were able mm-hmm. to do so much and at great, uh, great price that they paid for it. You know, nothing mm-hmm. makes me sort of, <laughs> um, you, you know, really angry in some ways, you know, you could, you want to say you know, people say oh Tajzadeh is is one of themselves for example I mean this figure that I mentioned mm-hmm. you know this is a man who's spent maybe nine years of the last 10 15 years when uh, you know you and I and a lot of our listeners abroad we were doing our dissertations doing our work going around this man has spent maybe like nine years in jail um and he he's some he is somehow supposed to be uh sort of less radical than we are um because he mm-hmm. doesn't agree with everything that, that that is being said somewhere um you know and and he's just one example and you brought Faiz Hashemi as an example mm. you know again an example of really someone i have a lot of respect for myself um of course, she had privileges that uh, that none of us had. Her father was the founding mm-hmm. founding figure of this regime. Of course, she also has never really criticized her father. So there's a lot of negative things you can say about Faiza. But she also mm-hmm. shows the kind of uncompromising political activist and politician who doesn't uh, compromise um, on things that, uh, you know, on things that are important. And that keeps coming out and opposing, again, uh, sort of regime policies with a very high price again. Of course, as I said, relatively little price compared to all Iranians who were killed on the streets for protesting. But again, she could have just sit in a corner and be Hashemi's daughter and um, uh, probably would be the head of Iranian sort of women's sports federations, which is the kind of thing that you've had in the regime, just like a lot of her brothers are. A lot of her brothers are successful politicians, but she really, you know, went to jail several times. And also the taboos that she broke. She would go and sit down um, with her Baha'i cellmate, um, uh, you know, in her house under a picture of of what it turned out to be a picture of a Baha'i religious leader and, and sort of try to normalize it and just say, you know, she has this beautiful quote that I have in the book, which she says, we're not animals, we're people. So of course, mm-hmm. you know, you know, why would you make a big fuss about me sitting down next to my former stomach? So I think these are precisely, look, um, what kind of political background you have is not an automatic predictor of, of what kind of mm-hmm. politics you'll have. And I think examples like this shows in the Iranian parliaments, inside the Iranian political system, there have been tons of people who, who've done great work. Um, and I think we should acknowledge them for that. Yes, we should recognize their limits. Um, but this silly uh, division that says as anybody who works in Iran in any way is kind of a dupe. It's very wrong. It was mm-hmm. also wrong when they did it in 79 to people who were doing great work inside 
um, Islamic Republic, sorry, inside the Shah's regime. Um, you know, uh, I, I think it was wrong in 1979 generation feminists. Uh, a lot of them who were anti-regime didn't look at the work of people like Mahnaz Afkami, who was a cabinet minister and mm -hmm. was able to accomplish mm -hmm. great things. So we shouldn't repeat the same mistakes. And another example I'll give is on South Africa. You know, inside the mm -hmm. apartheid regime in South Africa, there were people who were doing great kind of work within limits. There were white citizens of South Africa, black citizens of South Africa, who, of course, worked under terribly different conditions. But, you know, uh, mm -hmm. you cannot forget um, good work that is being done, um, uh, you know, just because it's not as radical as you want it to be. Let alone the fact that sometimes this work is actually someone like Faizé is as sort of radical as you could be in many ways. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's, a very, it's a very big shame if we write, write her off or write other people off because we don't like their last name, we don't like the way they wear their mm -hmm. hijab or we don't like their political past. I mean, this was all sort of these kinds of reactions were astounding, especially when Nagis Mohammadi won her Nobel Peace Prize, where, you know, there was a swath of Iranian expatriates just, uh, you know, putting on their social media that, uh, you know, basically uh, mourning the fact that somebody like her who had collaborated with reformists, etc., should be winning the prize when she has indeed paid, you know, the highest price of spending her life in prison without you know, seeing her children grow basically for, for these rights. So, um, these are, these are really, um, you know, very difficult and troubling trends that I hope Iranians as a whole are able to, to view with more, um, uh, what would be discernment, right? That's right. Yeah. The kinds of narratives that are pushed on, on these media. And I think, um, and then you know, so can yeah, I just say that ahead. I think we do have a moment of national division amongst Iranians. That's very sad. Mm -hmm. And you know, you always want to tell yourself maybe this is just a bunch of uh, diaspora activists in LA who are being loud. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is not mm -hmm. reflected on the ground. And you know, it's very hard to know to what degree. You know, is it? It's the eternal question: Is the are the crazies on Twitter or are they reflecting something in society? And mm -hmm. you know, to what degree are they amplified? Where and you know, what of it? You know, but I think it's not hard to see that there is a moment of national division amongst Iranians and we need, need to mm -hmm. overcome it by remembering mm -hmm. our shared goals um, and also less of sort of this hysteria. Look, I think this is something important to talk about because I think it happens in other movements as well. Mass hysteria mm -hmm. is never a good thing. This sort of let's find some, you know, let's find who is a culprit and the culprit ends mm -hmm. up being just a person who, you know, you don't like because he didn't do what you want them to do. Um, it's really mm -hmm. dangerous. And unfortunately, many participated in this uh, around a variety of figures. Let's say someone like Asghar Farhadi. I mean, you know, he is a filmmaker. He would win an award and he wouldn't, you know, immediately dedicate it to uh, the movement against the regime or something. So people have started having this hysteria against someone like Farhadi, for example, uh, for no mm -hmm. good reason. And unfortunately, this sort of has metastasized to this very mm -hmm. ugly political culture now that someone like Nagas Mohammadi, who opposes the regime, who is in the regime prisons for a very long time, mm -hmm. becomes fair game uh, for a bunch of critics. Um, and mm -hmm. I really think, and unfortunately, people will always say things like, well, a lot of people are killed, we're angry. You know, this is usually a beginning of a terrible argument, right? Um, mm -hmm. When you try to say, well, we because we are bereaved, we can do whatever we want, is exactly what the regime also says whenever it does a lot of uh, terrible things. You cannot sort of shut down your rationality and your brain uh, because you're bereaved. Um, and I think mm -hmm. we really need to, um, we really need to overcome this sort of ugly, culture of acrimony and uh, 
hostility uh, amongst Iranians mm-hmm. because if we want to have a country together one day we're going to have to share it with everybody including something like 20 million people who voted for conservative uh, candidates in the last elections let alone someone like Nagas mm-hmm. Mohammadi who opposes the regime as a whole and if we want to share mm-hmm. this country we need to overcome uh, these divisions it's really astounding when you think about you know what all the, the the range of people that are opposed basically leaves a very very small sliver of um, of people who would be acceptable to certain people and to these narratives that are driven um, by God knows you know what forces on social media and other forms of media um, and unfortunately as you said are having a hold not just on Iranians abroad but also inside of Iran I want to move on to your you know uh, to your to your chapter about labor movement and where you highlight the role of Haftap Pit and of course in the course of woman life freedom. Um, there was a big question about would the labor movement end up having the kind of impact, uh, the kind of um, you know crucial impact on the success of the revolution like the oil industry did or the oil workers did during the 1979 revolution. And I would love for you to, to lead us a little bit through this, um, you know, through the um, substance of this chapter and why you think the trade unions um, and labor unions ultimately couldn't play that role. And, um, uh, you know, I want to I want to read out just briefly sort of from the end of your chapter where you bring Kion um, Pierfalek, the nine or 10 year old boy who beautifully, um, you know, launched his science experiment with in the name of the God of Rainbows and uh, how Ismail Bakhshi showed up at his at his um, grave and um, said, Dear Kion, this is how your chapter ends, quote, um, we are here to speak of our shame. It was us who should have been killed on the streets so that you could reach all your dreams. But it wasn't to be. We promised to continue the struggle to build a world and a future for your friends filled with joy and freedom. This is where, you know, the labor activists really came together with the martyrs, the most prominent visually and uh, in terms of their stories, prominent mar- martyrs of the woman life freedom movement uh, of whom Kian was certainly one. And can you just speak to the role of the of the trade unions and the labor movement? Yeah, the trade union movement in Iran, um, like in many other chapters of this book, you know, you will see a common trend in which um, things in the late 1990s, uh, late, late 1990s, there is a bit of a more, uh, you know, there's more openness in Iranian society for activity, right? Following the election of Khatami in 1997. Things, of course, during the 80s, tens of thousands of political prisoners are executed. Um, you know, things are really repressed. And in the 90s, uh, this sort of more or less continues. But you, when you start to have a bit more freedom, you have a growth of all sorts of different uh, movements. And trade unions as well sort of found the moment that they're refounded. Um, and the, like most places in the world, they're sort of socialist, Marxist, this kind of activist, um, as well as good old trade unionists without necessarily this kind of uh, I would say generally leftist politics, but perhaps not sort of in, in this or that ideology that helped refound a variety of trade unions. Um, and, you know, I was a young leftist in Iran uh, myself in those years where I, uh, you know, like many a young leftist, I very enthusiastically took part in a variety of um, these kind of activities with this variety of workers activists. Um, and these organizations were very impressive. Um, the organiz- the bus workers union that I, Tehran bus workers union that I write about in the book is one that really mm-hmm. was able to shut down Tehran a couple of times and really show the power of labor. Um, Haftape, it's this important um, agri 
cultural business, agribusiness in southwestern Iran of sugarcane workers, uh, which is pretty important because you know it's sort of an important industry in Iran. Um, and and they they really they they have an, some important economic role, but it's still they're relatively limited. But they also more importantly have the rise of these labor figures, someone like Ismail Bakhshi. It's very important that you have rise of people like Mansour Osanlu, um, like. Um, Ismail Bakhshi, like Reza Madadi, who become sort of well-known as labor leaders, um, and something like Ismail Bakhshi going on the grave of Kian Pir Falak, this young boy who was killed, really shows uh, the potential of the rise of labor leaders. But why doesn't it, um, you know, why, and there are, there are attempts in, uh, to organize general strikes in December, there was an attempt to organize a three-day general strike. Um, so why is it that sort of, um, it doesn't go beyond that? I think there's a couple of factors. One is that it's still a relatively a small uh, number of um, there is a sort of relatively a small number of labor leaders who can who can rise up and and sort of find this political role because um, this is very difficult. It it comes with a lot of repression, um, but also because the society as a whole um, it's it's sort of imbued with what I would call middle class prejudices about trade unions. I think a lot of Iranians didn't understand mm-hmm. how does worker activism work. For example, you know, the, even the very word strike, general strike, mm-hmm. um, you know, I realized, mm-hmm. I, I already realized in 2009 with some amusement, of course, because when you sort of grow up as a leftist, which I did, you know, these words are like your ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized that people mm-hmm. actually didn't know what a strike meant. Uh, and they were like, mm-hmm. well, what do they do? They just don't go to work? And they, you know, why are they not coming to the street to protest? Uh, they wouldn't understand that actually not going to work is much more important, 10 times more important than showing up to a street protest. Because if you don't go to work, you can shut down an economy. Uh, of course, it's not as impressive. You don't get shot and uh, get killed necessarily always. So, uh, you know, it's it's not as politically bold, perhaps by the first glance, but ultimately it can be much more politically powerful because it's it's when you shut things down. And in 2009, a smart commentators, even those who were sort of a liberal, a smart commentators understood if even, you know, no matter if you heard uh, those in the US or others, they understood that what was really lacking was the labor efforts and that they, you didn't have mm-hmm. a shutting down of the economy in 2009 where we had much bigger protests than 2022, um, but uh, you didn't have the shutting down uh, of, 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 of the economy. And the same thing was visible here. I think People didn't necessarily understand the role of labor. Um, they didn't understand the kind of um, uh, action that uh, labor leaders can do. So in, in what is sort of a tragic two-sided way, um, labor leaders huh. couldn't rise up to these positions of leadership and because they sort of weren't really given this space. And also they had a limit as to how much they could grow. I mean, you had a strike, but the strike effectively... Uh, and, and let me explain what I mean that, they, that you didn't understand. For example, they also didn't understand that, well, if you want laborers to come, you need to put laborer demands at the center of your politics. Um, you need to really make this mm. a, um, you know, marry the movement to sort of demands that laborers have against privatization. Um, uh, let's say the teachers movement against uh, uh, what we call uh, commodification of education, which is, you know, sounds like a wordy thing, but it's actually a very common in the political sort of vocabulary in Iran, right? It's, it's very well known mm-hmm. because there are struggles that have been going on a long time. So I think ultimately, um, you know, this is related to the bigger question of, you know, why has the movement gone on defeat? And we have to be honest that it has so far. One of the is one of the reasons is that um, there wasn't sufficient attention paid um, into the kind of tactics that you would need to win against regime and the kind of 
leaders that you need to have. Um, and it, mm. this, what I would call middle class prejudices against the working class, um, broadly defined, mm. um, uh, is still, uh, you know, it, it, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 still, it's still a big problem, I think. It's a still a big problem and uh, one that we need to overcome because you cannot have a successful revolution mm. without bringing about uh, the participation of the working class, which includes a large majority of the Iranian society. And of course, for many of the workers, it was also, you know, at the end of the day, um, they needed to be able to feed their families. Iran's economy is not doing well. And as much as there were, uh, you know, among them, very powerful activists, um, I think we also have to acknowledge that this these are big sacrifices that the workers were making and that ultimately not, you know, some simply could not, right? Uh, given that... Um, yeah, absolutely. They, would, they, they would, would lose their job if they didn't go to work. Right? So, but that's mm-hmm. that's when you know that's but you, if you want people to come, you need to get serious. After all, when did the oil workers come to join in 1979? You know, they joined almost in 1979, and the revolution happened in February. They started joining in mm-hmm. like December, November, um, January, mm-hmm. right at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they were able to bring this final blow on on, on the Shah's regime. Um, so you cannot have you cannot expect workers to sort of participate. Um, uh, so mm-hmm. easily, and also the kind of the other important thing is the kind of politics that you you want to have, as I said, um, and the kind of um, it, this is as a whole. The movement it started to understand this point at some point, right? There was the speaking of Qishra Khakistari, right? The gray, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the gray uh, sort of sectors by which they meant people mm-hmm, who are not mm-hmm. sure. The, the so-called gray mm-hmm. sector is not like they love the Islamic Republic. It's just that they were not sure. You know, are they ready to give up their life? And I think this is really funny. Um, and I say I use funny in a macabre way here. <clears throat> when you know someone mm-hmm. in like Oregon or like you know Montana would say things like, oh, well, why wouldn't they come out, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because they have a life. Uh, you know, you these people who said this would probably not lose one hour of their own jobs uh, for any mm-hmm. anything. Um, you know, you mm-hmm. cannot just expect people to uh, give up their life, um, uh, you know, thinking that they will have a guaranteed uh, result at the end. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, uh, you know, I think these are serious weaknesses. They, You never had the political leadership of this movement to the degree that it could form a political leadership abroad, never reached the sort of serious enough of an effort so that people would mm-hmm. join it. Had it done that, you would have had much more uh, participation inside Iran as well. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, as as important as this uh, conversation is, given that the labor movement and, you know, the working classes were such a backbone to the two previous mass uprisings prior to the Women Life Freedom Movement, um, you know, I think all the points that you make really, uh, you know, need need attention. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to move on to, uh, I feel like we could have a long discussion on this subject, but I'm going to move on to your next chapters because I'm mindful of time and I want to make sure that, you know, we cover some of the other issues that you raised throughout your wonderful book. Um, Some of which I feel like, you know, I'm going to ask you about the structure of your book, but I feel like, you know, it's almost uh, a bit of reflection, not, not entirely, but a bit of reflection of, um, Shervin Hajipur's song Baroye, right? Yeah, absolutely. The points that, yeah. <laughs> that Iranians had tweeted about find find reflection certainly in some form in the organization of your book. Uh, why don't I just ask you about it right now since I've already made this comment and then move on? So uh, 
Tell me about that a little bit. Is that actually what inspired um, the structure of the book? I mean, I know you mentioned your wife in terms of the structure, but I don't <laughs> want to forget Aisha here. But yeah, no, that's that's actually it is it is literally my wife plus chairman. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, I I thought a lot about how I could do this, right? And I you know I was in Chicago at the time, and I was sort of walking with my wife and trying to ask her. And the reason is that my wife is not from Iran. Uh, She's a brilliant scholar on her own right, but she's not from Iran. So I, you know, she could have a more outsider perspective as to, you know, what would you, if you wanted to read a book about Iran to learn more about Iran, you know, what would you be interested in? And she sort of mentioned sort of, oh, you know, I would like to know about the diversity of struggles. And then I did think of Sherwin's song. Uh, Not that I went through the song and particularly picked every line, but actually I think every chapter could be linked to uh, some line Mm -hmm. in that song. Um, in that, you know, and I think it was a, a beautiful moment, actually, when you remember, because there was sort of a beautiful pluralism in this song, um, because uh-huh. it included, you know, it was based based on tweets, right? So it was sort of outsourced mm-hmm. based on tweets. Um, it included pluralism because it had a large number of sort of demands that people have, including for Afghan children, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is uh, which was a beautiful when when we see some of the ultra nationalism that unfortunately overtook at some point. It's mindful to remember that actually this movement had um, sort of such beautiful demands, or the fact that you mm-hmm. know the fact that it, the environment played such a such a mm-hmm. big role. So mm-hmm. it was it was definitely an an inspiration song to to remember that this movement mm-hmm. uh, was very pluralistic and very. Uh, had a very broad basis also, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, and which really the song uh, and the kind of uh, wide attention that it had, uh, uh, you know, shows. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, environmentalism. You do write in your fourth chapter, this was a green revolution. Of course, uh, the, you know, um, cheetah pirus, the cheetah baby pirus um, at risk of extinction became a sort of, you know, tragic parable for this movement i believe by the time when when he finally died due to kidney failure i think we had reached a low point in this movement and it was a bit of um people's hopes dying but um you know what ultimately this movement will uh, mean is a different conversation and i do love your your chapter on on the environmentalist um you know and the kind of you know you t- you talk about kove madani and the fact that during the Rouhani government, you know, there was there was a sliver of a moment when um, when there were hopes that some of the you know brain drain that had left Iran might return and contribute to you know the reconstruction or you know the the strengthening of uh, Iran's various sectors from the environment to you know whatever it is. And of course, those hopes were dashed, and um, Kabe Madani ultimately left the country under, you know, uh, fear of being arrested um, once Kavu Sayyid Imami and other environmentalists, some of whom are still sitting in prison today, um, were arrested. And Kavu Sayyid Imami, of course, died in prison under very suspicious uh, circumstances. Um, I, I, you know, to move on to... Um, to the to the chapter in which you highlight the role of... Um, I wonder if I should give you a minute to to comment on on the role of the environment, especially because I mentioned, you know, these environmentalists, some of whom are still in uh, prison. And um, yeah, I can very, I can say something briefly if you yeah. want. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I would say that um, you know, 
I would say there's one of the most beautiful aspects of this movement was how much Iranians cared for the environment that it's being destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the fact that in the middle of the movement, people would care for this cheetah. I mean, you know, this this little animal. And they would it was almost like treat mm-hmm. him like a martyr of the revolution. It was something beautiful. It really shows kind of the... Why do I keep using the word beautiful? Because I think it's very important when sort of it shows the human mm-hmm. dimensions of a movement um, that can really, um, that can show and demonstrate its difference from the regime that it's fighting by the kind of values that it represents. Um, that's the kind mm-hmm. of movement we would want. Um, we should make mm-hmm. us think when we look at some of this sort of other behavior that sometimes one sees. And I think it's also important because it showed environmental activism. I think it's a model for environmental activists around the world in a way because it showed that it can actually be um, linked to some sort of a progressive patriotism. In fact, Iranians cared about their lived-in environment. They cared about their country, and they they were very, mm-hmm. um, you know, their uh, activism doesn't happen without sort of emotions, and sort of they have this emotive response to the the Rumia Lake being dried up, the Zion the River in Isfahan being dried up, of the Iranian cheetah going mm-hmm. extinct, and I think that's a very uh, potentially powerful basis for. Um, for an environmental movement, of course, we need a sort of global approach to fight against cl- climate change. But it's also good to remember this is our, our countries, our lands that are being destroyed. They belong to all of us. Um, and so it's not sort of a nature versus human, as is sometimes mm-hmm. portrayed in some uh, sort of ecological circles. It's actually a question of humans and their lived in environments. Um, and I thought, and, and you know, the brilliant um, environmentalists that, that you mentioned, unfortunately, most of whom are still in jail are um, are just part of a large population um, in Iranian prisons of people who uh, pay a very high price because just because they dare to make this uh, country a better place. Right. And not too long ago, Nilufar Bayani, of course, published um, revelations of the kind of, um, you know, um, psychological and um, and other kinds of torture that she received, that has received throughout her ordeal um, in prison. And she still remains... Um, in prison, uh, among others, as you mentioned, um, you know, in a in a in a later chapter, you write about the freedom of religion, and you highlight the role of Baluchistan became very prominent, of course, in this uprising. Baluchistan and Kurdistan, in, in many ways, were um, key to um, to to this uprising. And in in your chapter on uh, in your chapter on that, you write. Um, Abdul Hamid's pulpit in Zahidan now became a tribune of the people. Iranians were used to imams spouting out Khamenei's line in the sermons before Friday prayers. But in this south, excuse me, but in this southeastern corner of Iran, Abdul Hamid's weekly sermon went directly against the regime. Um, prior to talking about um, Mulavi Abdul Hamid, you also highlighted the role of Khodanur uh, Lejei, of course, who became very his dance and his chained uh, wrists and ankles around the pole became a very iconic sort of, you know, image of this uprising of the kind of um, inhumane and um, really uh, horrible treatment that uh, he received and others like him received. Can you talk a little bit about the role of Baluchistan and um, and Mulavi Abdul Hamid? He, he really makes a figure in this book. I think it's, it's, I think Mulavi Abdul Hamid is such a fascinating figure because you remember that no matter there is politics inside Iran despite everything. And this is a guy, you know, he's one of the only guys who's been longer in his position than Khamenei, right? He has mm-hmm. been here as as the sort of preeminent Sunni politician in Iran um, and who mm-hmm. holds important religious um, and political positions inside Iran and is a- able to become some sort of a national figure for 
primarily for the Baluch, in, who is an ethnic minority in southeastern Iran, but also for Sunnis as a whole, uh, to a degree. Of course, the, we have Kurdish Sunni communities and other sort of Sunni communities on, on the Persian Gulf Coast. Um, and, you know, uh, I think uh, many look up to Mulavi Abdulham. That's some sort of a, as some sort of a figure. Um, and I think... Um, you know the fight against the fight against uh, uh, religious oppression um, and and ethnic oppression um, in Iran mm-hmm. is important and it's it's definitely an important part of this uh, part of this movement. Um, and I think someone like uh, Moulavi Abdul Hamid showed, you know, what what he showed people was that number one, you could be someone who has held as I say established positions inside the country, but you can also add the add an important point. You can um, really use. Uh, these positions um, to rise up against uh, the regime, and it's not easy to touch him because because they know he is represents an important segment of the Iranian um, society. Even though there were many campaigns against him, right, but they were not able to push him aside. And he's also a religious mm-hmm. figure, of course. He's a religious imam, but he showed that you can have you can have indeed a religious leadership. Um, and there are Shia clerics who could play a similar role. There are other sort of religious leaders who could play a similar role who, who can you know who can really give voice. Um, and you know, give voice to the people, and so I think you know I listened, I spent hours listening to different sermons on him in order to uh, write this book, and uh-huh. a lot of these sermons are what you would expect from a sermon. There's a story about the Prophet Muhammad, um, there you know uh-huh. stories about uh, you know like a usual religious sermon, but he was able to really use his pulpit, as I said, for the people in this key moment, um, and uh, I think it's important to treasure, um, uh, and you know like. He had, let's not forget it, endorsed Raisi, right, in the, in the elections. Mm-hmm. He had said terrible things in praise of Taliban at some point, right? So people don't come with a clean, mm-hmm. this is, I mean, any any historian would tell you this, right? Like people don't come with a clean um, track record, right? They always have a sort of contradictions in their history. Um, but at a key mm-hmm. moment, um, it's, it's important what they come to represent. He came to represent um, the fight of, of the Baluchis for... Um, uh, for their rights, and also he be- become an important sort of integrative figure because he, of course, was at uh, you know at the same time he he asserted uh, Baluch as Iranian citizens, um, and mm-hmm. uh, you know the government would always try to paint every movement as secessionist, and that this would lead to distrust amongst uh, a variety of Iranians against one another, and fe- people like Abdul, uh, people like Mulavi Abdul Hamid can be a great uh, antidote to this because he asserted his leadership um, over the Baluch and he asserted their rights. At the same time, he asserted uh, these rights as Iranian citizens and and sort of helped uh, unity of the country, which is what we would need for any successful uh, movement in Iran, just by the nature of our country being so big and including different parts. Yeah. Uh, In your last chapter, Sarina's Revolution, The Fight for a Normal Life, you highlight I think one of the most um, um, searing sort of, uh, you know, just one of these young people who who was killed, who will just never leave your mind, right? If you, because she was a vlogger, um, a video blogger, and because she had so much content online and because there was this video released, uh, you know, became, there was this video that went viral of her really talking about her or, you know, the, her day-to-day life. And, um, and in one of them, which you, you know, quite a quote, quite a lot from uh, where she talks about what it means to be a 16 year old in Iran and what does it mean to have Ozari and where does it get, you know, how does it feel to be a 16 year old girl in Iran? Um, And it ends with, uh, you know, a photo of her with a black ribbon across the corner indicating that she's now been, you know, killed and she's dead. Um, 
you know, you will not forget, Sarino, if you've seen this uh, video of this budding, incredible, you know, young human being who has her entire life in front of her um, and is yet cut short. And your last chapter is dedicated to her. You do mention some of these other very iconic sort of, you know, people and personas of this uprising, including Nikosha Kanami. Um, and you've, uh, but it's mostly about Sarina. And in it, you're right. You know, in this sense, Iran's new revolutionaries resemble, about their plight, resemble a return to the older tradition of Iranian quest for democracy and civil rights embodied in the Persian Constitutional Revolution of 1906. Paradoxically, however, the Iranian quest for normality and democracy appears quite revolutionary in 2022. And I think that really goes to the crux of the matter of this movement, right? And why uh, certain images, um, for example, the image of, uh, you know, Donia Rod and her friend having breakfast in a downtown sort of southern Tehran eatery became so prominent when it was such an ordinary photo, but it just presented two women eating in a casual dinery without their headscarves on. And can you speak to, to this chapter and what you highlight as you know, ultimately this quest for normality. The reason I wrote the last chapter uh, about Sarina um, was that, you know, as when we write about revolutions, when we think about revolutions, it's, it's we do something, you know, this is sort of a problem for historians, if you will. Usually we define a revolution by its ideologues, right? We look at the text of these uh, leaders. We try to sort of understand the Iranian revolution by reading Shariati or Motahari or Khomeini, um, you know, Russian revolution by reading Lenin or Trotsky or Plekhanov or other Russell Luxembourg for German revolution, others. But it's not these leaders or these ideologues who make revolutions, right? It's the ordinary people. They are the ones who are risking their life. They are the ones who are doing the, the, the dying. Um, and why do they do that? It's always a sort of a mystery to historians. Um, they can, of course, try to look for um, clues here and there. Um, and sometimes you find a rich depository of someone like Serena. Um, and this rich depository was her online writings and videos. Um, I listened to every single video that she had. I went through every, uh, you know, she had a few Telegram channels. I sort of went through all of them. And, you know, it was is still the most sort of painful chapter of the book to write and painful chapter to read even uh, in, in reviews. I sometimes couldn't even read it in the review because the way mm -hmm. she, you know, she reminded me so much of my own cousins that are of her age um, mm -hmm. and their quest for the world, which really didn't fit. You know, what makes you angry is that you would, you would think that... You know, everybody would have the lives of women in the Middle East are always subject of this or that politics and on all sides, right? Some people want to, you know, sort of use people of pictures of women in miniskirts in the 60s to push a certain agenda. Some people do the opposite, unfortunately, and say, oh, no, actually, this doesn't represent anyone. Um, This was like 5% of society, whatever. No, no, you know, none of which really makes sense. Whereas for those of us who are from that society, it was just refreshing how ordinary and how commonplace this was. Um, a young teenager who loved Albert Camus and um, wanted to have sort of, you know, watched uh, Casa de Papel and, and wanted to do certain things. And she had friends who wore different kinds of a job. Um, and, you know, she did not come, you know, from this segregated section of society where everyone is westernized or these kind of terms that are usually used, right? She was an ordinary mm -hmm. Iranian and like my cousins, like many others, and, and I'm not saying that everyone would have picked everything that she did, obviously, right? We are all different. Mm -hmm. um, but she was very refreshingly ordinary. And 
um uh, you know by which i mean of course she was extraordinary in many ways there's you know there's so much talent in 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 a lot of what she says um um and it, there's so much uh sort of interesting thinking to remember f- for a, for a 17 year old um, but I think this was gave us a mirror, really, as to the kind of people who did the fighting and dying um, in this revolution for what, uh, you know, as you said yourself, uh, by pointing out to Donia Ron, for what they consider to be a normal life. Um, and in many ways, it is a normal life of, of trying to um, have a life free of repression, um, where they can pursue their dreams um, the way they want. Um, which would require, of course, you know, at, at a higher level, it would require democracy, but at even lower levels, it would require sort of basic prosperity and, and getting rid of this uh, repressive regime. So um, I think the reason Sarina touched so many of our hearts um, was that she was able to really encapsulate um, uh, who uh, the Iranians of her generations are and how refreshingly they have not given up. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they they keep going on in this um unending inspiring um march of life that is hard to imagine sometimes mm-hmm. like you would think mm-hmm. they would give up at some point you would think they would un- conform um but they mm-hmm. don't generation after generation you don't you know i'm not old enough uh you know sarina uh, uh could have almost been my daughter i would say not quite but almost right um so uh, this is like a couple of generations after me um, and, uh, you know, in our generation, we thought we were very brave because we did certain things, but these people, the, this generation has done much more. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's the wellspring of, of this movement. Um, and I mm-hmm. hope I was able to capture uh, some of it, um, um, in, in writing about her. For sure. For sure. Um, you know, in your epilogue, you say it will be a pitch in terms of, you know, of course, as some, as, you know, as people who comment on Iran were often asked, what, where do you think this is going? What is the future of Iran? And so you try to address that in your epilogue and you say, it will be a pitched battle between two poles, one consisting of, you know, in terms of who will succeed Khamenei and what might come after him. You say it'll be a pitched battle between two poles, one consisting of the IRGC, the uh, Iranian Re- Islamic Republic Revolutionary Guard, the ambitious men who control the guns and the butter, the other consisting of the men and women at the heart of this book whose resources are bravery and determination. So who do you put your bet on? Um, This is a very difficult question because, of course, my heart is with the ordinary men and women in this book of the civil societies. And, um, and of course, the battle won't, won't be over in a day. Um, this battle would, in a way, be ongoing no matter what happens at each political juncture. And um, I'll continue to support uh, this inspiring man and woman that this book is about. Um, but unfortunately, if one has to be also honest, uh, in the immediate political future, they'll have a lot of uh, trouble overcoming the guards and others. Um, that is because um, the lack of political organization um, and the lack of political unity. And I hope that all of us, to the small roles that we can play, we are able to overcome um, this difficulty. We are able to put aside these pernicious ideas about horizontality, about changing the world via Twitter, uh, mm, about mm. Um, you don't need leaders, it's the age of leaders are over, we don't need ideologies, things like that. And we're able to actually put together 
organizations and political coalitions that, and we're able to reach across to each other, across their differences, because that's also very important. Um, after all, uh, the people in this book, they're not, have not always been united with each other either. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, they would need to do that, um, in serious ways in order to be able to, uh, change Iran. So I would say the battle will be long, um, uh, and, and things will be pretty hard at sort of the next political juncture, which I think will come with the Fafkhamenei. It can also come before, but you know, that, that's the, that's the one place. Uh-huh. Um, but we would, uh, but we would need to, um, we would need to continue, uh, continue the struggle and, and, and never give up. Um, but we'd also realize, we have to realize that moral victories go so far. You can't, if you need to win in politics, you need to win and you need to muster force to win. Um, you know, Martin Luther King, um, the civil rights movement here didn't abolish um, Jim Crow laws by just being morally superior. And they did it by being able to muster the force together and, and organize. And same with other movements that have won. And unfortunately, many movements around the world have not uh, won. Um, mm-hmm. And we need to learn that being praised, uh, you know, on the CNN or being praised as sort of morally superior uh, is does not give you winning. Um, organiza- mm. Organization, uh, mustering up force, as I said, uh, is 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 what makes you win, and we we need to be able to do that. Um, and it, it would be an incredibly difficult uh, thing to do because of the odds that we face and because of the powerful interests that 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 we would oppose. But uh, that's that's what is needed um, if we want to see change in our country. Right. Thank you so much, Arash, Arash Azizi, for this conversation. Before I, before we say goodbye, uh, I just want to uh, come back to a promise I made at the beginning of the podcast, which is to ask you for all those listeners who are also in- interested in this aspect about your practice. Um, you know, it's not hard to see that you're very productive. You've had, you know, two books in the span of the last two years. You've written, finished your dissertation, gotten your doctorate. What's your practice? What do you? How do you? How do you sit down to write? Um, what are some? I don't know. Tips you have for others who are listening and who are like, yeah, that's that's awesome. I want to know how he's doing this. <laughs> well, I certainly don't recommend doing <laughs> your uh, dissertation and a book at the same time. You know, that's uh, right. Um, uh, you know, that I don't recommend doing that. But but other than that, um, you know, writing is a very fascinating uh, practice. Um, it's definitely not enjoyable for me, um, as in when I have to write, you know, I, you know, I don't enjoy the process as in the way that I enjoy, you know, a cocktail or, or sitting somewhere or doing <laughs> something. It's a, it's a very difficult because it's sort of unnatural. You see, when we are talking to each other, you know, we go back yeah. and forth on our words, um, you know, we, 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 we couldn't just write this, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, writing requires you to sort of, I mean, I think it requires sort of um, a style, uh, it, it requires to really uh, put things um, uh, put things in a style that would be, uh, you know, that would be compelling um, and that would also, remembering that the person who is reading this might know Iran very well, might not know nothing about Iran and you need to sort of uh-huh. write in a way that would be uh, readable to both of them. Um, although I always err on the side of them not knowing anything about Iran because, uh, you know, the, I hope that the book will be a window to Iran for, for new readers. I would say, though, the the kind of um, one advice that I really try to uh, use usually 
um, I mean, I, I, I guess particularly for academics, which is why we are is important to remember, um, uh-huh. is one that uh, Patricia Cronin, a well-known Middle East historian, is, who has passed away now, unfortunately, is said to have uh, given before, you know, my publisher told me this, is that, you know, she uh-huh. would always say when she writes, she used to be an editor of this series about uh, different sort of biographies of makers of the Muslim world. Um, and she would say that, you know, she writes as if she's having a... She would recommend to people to write as if they're having a long train ride with someone and they try to sort of in some sort of educated way speak to them and tell them about a topic. And and that's what I mm. that's what I sort of try to do as in, you know, try to not to sort of dumb it down in any ways, but to try to imagine it as some sort of a conversation um, with a reader as you sort of take them through. And I think we do that all the time, um, you know, when we are discussing about something, when we're telling each other about a story, we try to make it interesting uh-huh. and we try to uh, bring the reader. So that's that's what I try to do. It's always a struggle because the, um, you know, uh, pushing this too much make would make it sort of a book. I don't like when people just get rid of all names and make it sort of a generic book. Um, and certainly my first book has even more names in it, all these generals and different political parties mm-hmm, and all that. Mm-hmm. And I guess it would always mm-hmm. limit its audience um, somewhat. But um, I guess the attempt is to be able to tell a story, remain faithful to its main elements, um, but able to say it in a way that, uh, you know, you can uh, you can connect to a reader. I think this is particularly important for, for academics if you're, because we do long research about a topic um, and we sort of have the foundings of our research, but it's if we want to get them across to uh, to a broader audience, um, um, you know, this is the way to do it. And I would, I would also say that there's a great tradition of literate cultures, um, which unfortunately sometimes is disappearing, frankly, in the world of images and, and sounds in which you know, in which mm-hmm. you learn to be curious about the world um, and also connect to this kind of prose that is not written, as I said, in a dumbed-down uh, version, but uh, but mm-hmm. also not in accessible uh, way that uh, someone who is literate and, and interested to learn will be able to connect with it. But um, it's a immense pleasure to do this for um, voices of people that I cared so much about, uh, men and women of Iran. And if I've done, mm-hmm. you know, 5% and 10% of capturing the kind of uh, immense human energy and life force that they've shown um, I, I would be very happy and I believe you have and um, it's a wonderful book Arash John thank you thank you for this conversation Arash Azizi with his book uh, which will be published in January 2024 What Iranians Want Women Life Freedom thank you so much for being on this podcast thank you so much You are listening to an episode of Woman Life Freedom, All In on Iran, broadcast to you from the University of Texas at Austin. I'm your host, Nahid Siamdust. Until next time, Shenjian Azadi, Zanzendegi Azadi.